0: And 18 years ago or so, a group of hackers and political activists calling themselves the Bureau of Piracy in Sweden launched a website that would become the target of numerous lawsuits and police raids. And yet, 18 years later, the website, the Pirate Bay, is still up and running. So today I thought I would talk not just about the history of the site uh, or the philosophy of the site's founders or even the battles fought between the established music industry and the pirate community, but also the technology that underpins the whole thing in the first place. But first, let's start with some underlying facts of how we got here, which will involve a quick discussion of the history of the music industry and its issue with copying media, because that's really at the heart of all this. Now, in the old, old days, before the the era of recorded media, so before you could actually make a, a record of music other than like sheet music or something, making a living off music was pretty darn tough. Um, you had your folk musicians who would earn, you know, a bit of cash here and there, getting hired to play or maybe paid to go away if they were really bad. Uh, you had your composers. Many of those would work either in the service of a monarch, or a nobility, or maybe the church—Bach did a lot of work for the church. Only a few had a more public-facing way of paying the bills. Beethoven was one of those, um, and actually made money by selling sheet music of his compositions. But it was really the invention of recorded media, like wax cylinders and such, that really opened up doors—not just for musicians but also for the companies that made the recordings. In fact, it really opened up doors for those companies. Now, all the way back in 1889, a guy named Edward D. Easton founded a phonograph company called Columbia. It had, you know, various different names, but Columbia Music, Columbia Pictures, all comes from this original company in 1889. It worked in tandem with Thomas Edison's company for a few years, producing regional recordings of its own wax cylinders in order to sell on these brand new inventions of the phonograph. But other companies started to come into being as well, and some of them started to introduce new technologies like recorded discs, as in, you know, record albums, though they were made out of shellac instead of vinyl for the first several decades. But, you know. That meant that there was a, a technological evolution beyond the wax cylinder. Well, the companies, you know, now that there were a few of them, were eager to kind of corner a market, to offer something to customers that the other companies could not offer. And they began to work with various artists and were signing them to exclusive deals. Like This is where you would get signed to a record label, essentially. The artists would get a chance to record their music and make some money off of it. And the companies would establish a roster of artists that they could promote and sell to customers. And the music industry was effectively born. It was, and to some extent still is, cutthroat, with companies jealously scooping up talents that are perceived to be a commodity. And a whole business model came to form over time, with companies determining how much to pay out to artists. Uh, Generally speaking, most musicians don't see a whole lot of money from record sales. You know, you might get a big advance as a record contract, but you don't necessarily make a lot of money off of the record sales themselves unless you have a good royalty deal and you sell a, let's see, I think the technical term is a metric crap ton of records. And nowadays, that's even harder to do, right? Because you've got things like streaming services. That's a whole... Separate issue that I should really go into at some point to talk about the music industry, streaming, and how that affects artists. But let's get back to talking about the music industry in general. So in 1952, way before the streaming days, several music labels worked to form an organization in America called the Recording Industry Association of America, or RIAA. Now, the RIAA is a trade organization that sets technical standards for the recording industry, you know, which is important. You want to make sure that you're not fragmenting the market to the point where customers get frustrated, right? Like, if it turned out I could buy a record from Columbia and a different record from Victor, but they would only play on their respective players and I can't afford both players, that would be incredibly frustrating. You know, as a customer, I just want the stuff I buy to work on the stuff that I have, right? We've seen it over and over again that when the the market gets fragmented with different standards, it hurts everybody in the long run. So that was one of the reasons the RIAA formed. But it also tracks recording sales, and it's the organization that awards stuff like gold records and platinum records. So if you hear about a, a record going platinum, it was the RIAA that tracked those sales And uh, and, you know, essentially authorize that to say, like, yes, this this activates Uh, again, a weird thing in the streaming age. But it's probably most famous for folks who are at least Internet savvy as the organization that fights tooth and nail against piracy and copyright infringement, Uh, sometimes to the point of, well, beyond belief, I would say. One thing we've seen over and over in the music biz and the entertainment business overall, not just music, I mean, we've seen this in the movie industry and TV as well, is a reluctance to support anything that would allow someone to make a copy of a recorded work. So for a long time, that really was not an issue. There just wasn't an easy way to do it. The average person had no way to copy a recording. Then in the 1960s, we had the development of the cassette tape, though it would take a few more years for cassette tapes to reach a a quality suitable for music. But once that happened, we saw the RIAA really take notice. It would become something of a pattern. As tech companies developed ways for consumers to copy media onto a format, we would see a resistance to that in the industry and lobbying activities that were aimed at extending copyright law to protect copyright holders And to, like, try and strike down technology before it could hit the public. And let's do a quick aside about copyright holders, because uh, this is important not just for this discussion about the music industry, but also about the Pirate Bay in particular. So in the United States, copyright law is arguably pretty darn bonkers, thanks largely to major corporations like Disney pushing for expanded copyright protection over the years. So current copyright law provides exclusive rights to the copyright holder for a term of 70 years after the author of that work's death, so the entire life of the author plus 70 years, or 95 years after publication if the rights are held not by an author, but rather, say, someone else. So holding a copyright gives the holder the exclusive right to reproduce and sell those reproductions or copies of that work. If you are not the copyright holder, then you do not have the right to make copies. And that, you know, can be considered infringement. I should also mention that uh, frequently the copyright holder in this case is not necessarily the person who wrote a piece of music or the artist or group that recorded the music. It's typically the music company that's the copyright holder. So that's not the case everywhere, mind you, but for pretty much the entire history of the Music industry, music companies have dominated the copyright space. And so defending copyright wasn't really about standing up for the artists and writers out there, although that's how it's almost always framed. It was actually to protect the financial assets of a company. However, there's also a concept called fair use. This complicates matters. Now, generally speaking, there are some pretty narrow cases in which someone can make an unauthorized copy of a copyrighted work, and it won't be considered copyright infringement. Typically, these restrictions fall into stuff like if you're doing it for academic research, or you're providing criticism of a work, or you're making a parody of a work. But even within these restrictions, there's a fairly narrow path you have to follow. So for example, let's say that you wanted to critique the latest Stephen King novel. So you include several chapters of that novel in full, as part of your critique, well, you would really be pushing your luck because you're using so much of the original work. Now, fair use isn't a force field or anything. Like, even if you're following all the rules and you're maybe you're criticizing something and you're using a little bit of the original work in order to make a point and you've really got all your bases covered, it's not like fair use is a preemptive strike. It's actually something that only comes into play once you get taken to court. And you would present your case to a judge and try to argue fair use and the court would decide whether or not it was actually fair use or not. You can't, you know, pre-declare this is fair use. No matter how many times you might see something like that on, say, a social networking platform or YouTube or whatever, it don't work that way. Uh, Also, the whole thing of I only used 10 seconds of audio, that you know, the amount you use does factor into decisions about whether or not something is fair use, but there is no minimum amount that is magical. Anyway, even if you're in the right, if someone takes you to court and you defend yourself with an argument about fair use and you win, it's still expensive. So unless you're awarded some money in the process, you're going to be out some cash. It's it's tough. Well, home reproduction of copyrighted works is one of those sticky areas that sometimes gets lumped in with fair use. Because while there's been discussions about working in an exemption for home copying for, for like archival purposes or whatever, it's never been codified in U.S. law. So if you were to purchase an album, whether, you know, it was on CD or vinyl or whatever, maybe it's even digital, you know, maybe you purchased a digital album, And then you decide to make a backup recording of it. And let's say that, you know, you're going old school. You're putting it on a cassette. You make a cassette recording of the album. There are some people who would argue that what you've done could be fair use because you're creating an archive or backup copy of a work. You're not making any commercial use of it. You're not selling it. You're not publishing it. Uh, You still have the original copy. So it's not like you've given your original copy away And you're generally thought of to be in the clear, as long as the the copy you have made is for your own personal use and not for commercial purposes. Uh, Even though, again, this is not codified in law, it's just the interpretation that people have made. But we saw the RIAA react in similar ways every single time a new consumer tech with copying abilities appeared, with the RIAA essentially saying this was doom for the industry, uh, we saw the TV and movie studios do the same thing with the uh, the rise of the VCR. Uh, we really saw the RIAA push harder with the emergence of digital audio tapes or DAT formats. The big worry there was that unlike, you know, okay, so analog cassettes, analog formats, cassette tapes are analog, uh, generally meant that you would have a decline in audio quality, like the copy would not sound as good as the original. So There was a a little bit of a uh, relief in the industry because the thought was, well, yeah, people can copy stuff. uh, And we don't like that. Not even if they're just copying it for themselves, but at least the copies don't sound as good as the originals. So we have the edge there. Well, digital was different, right? Digital recordings can go bit for bit and you can have a perfect transfer of a file, meaning There's no decrease in audio quality. The copy is just as good as the original. So the quality you get would be dependent upon the playback device you were using more than anything else. Well, the RIAA did not like that, and they lobbied very hard to head off issues with digital transfers, the fear being that if it's easy to make perfect copies of stuff, piracy will run rampant and the music industry as a whole will collapse. Now, I do not totally buy that argument, by the way. But the RIAA was able to affect legislation enough for the DAT format to be kind of dead on arrival. I mean, it did exist, but there were a lot of copy protections that were built in place that inhibited that particular technology from getting widespread adoption. Uh, The compact disc would have much better success. And there are other parts to that story as well, but that goes beyond this episode. Anyway, you can only imagine that once we reached the point where it became feasible to share digital files over the internet, how the RIAA reacted. The trade organization is famous for its vigorous defense of copyright. So we're gonna skip up to 1999. This was a few years before the emergence of BitTorrent and a few years more before the Pirate Bay would launch. So in 1999, an American college student named Sean Fanning created a peer-to-peer network platform called Napster. Oh, Napster, what a hornet's nest you stirred up. All right, let's talk about peer-to-peer for a second. So in the early days of the general public being aware of the Internet, one of the really big limiting factors was the download speeds. I mean, a lot of people were using dial up Internet. It was slow. Transferring large files could take a really long time. And if there were any network issues between the client, which is the computer, what's doing the downloading and the server, that would be the computer that hosted the original file. If anything happened between those two, it could take even longer to download the file, right? Like if a connection broke or something. Peer-to-peer networks presented an alternative to your classic client-server system. In a peer-to-peer network, every computer connected to that network acts both as a client and a server. That's why they're called peers. They're all peers of each other. Typically, you would designate a folder in your computer's directory for the purposes of downloading and sharing files anything you put in that folder would become visible and accessible to all the other computers on this peer-to-peer network. And any downloads you initiated would go into that folder. Uh, It didn't have to be that way, by the way. You could actually direct stuff to a different folder and you could choose to share nothing. But it was a a pretty typical approach to do it this way. Now, the big benefit of the peer-to-peer system is that the files could propagate across networks fairly quickly. Uh, You'd load up the P2P client, the program you were using to access this network, and you would look for servers that were hosting a file that you were particularly interested in. Uh, Now, assuming that was a pretty popular file, you would probably see a pretty good selection of options, and you could choose a server, up here to download from. You You could look to see about signal strength or how far away it was. Like, if you saw something that had a pretty good signal strength and it was close to you, you could guess that you were going to get that file fairly quickly, at least as quickly as anything traveled on the internet back in the late 90s. Uh, And if things were super slow, you could always stop and switch to a different peer on that network to see if maybe your connection to that peer was faster. Napster became famous for being a hub of pirated music exchanges. Uh, Some users were ripping music from their CDs, just putting those in the shared P2P folder on their machines, and then searching for files to fill out their collections while sharing their own. And this totally bypassed the traditional model of purchasing music from a retail establishment. And the music industry wasn't seeing penny one from these exchanges, and it indeed seemed as though the sky would fall. Keep in mind, this is before iTunes. Uh, There weren't that many companies that were directly selling digital files to customers. The ones that were were kind of, it was a, a pain in the butt, to navigate through all of them, um, like because there weren't there weren't sort of centralized stores that you could go to like iTunes. So people were making do with what they had and using ways to get around that. Now, I should also add, like there's some people who use peer to peer networks and torrent sites and stuff like that, and all they want to do is just get as much stuff for free as they possibly can. And that's their big thing. They just don't want to pay for anything. There are others who are like, I would pay for this, but there's not really any way I can do it, at least not easy way to do it. And so I have to do it this way. And then there are yet others who are using it as a statement against like late stage capitalism. Anyway, member organizations in the RIAA went after Napster as well as individual users. And we'll talk a bit about what happened with that after we come back from this quick break. Okay, so the RIAA decides that Napster is a huge boogeyman and uh, also individual users who were downloading uh, files. They couldn't go after everybody, obviously, but they could go after a few people and make some real big examples out of folks and scare the heck out of other people who had been pirating music. Uh, There was a hailstorm of lawsuits with music companies seeking huge amounts in damages, sometimes targeting extremely sympathetic individuals. Like, there were cases where it was a young kid who was found at fault, or grandparents or whatever. Not the best way to win a PR battle, right? So the whole affair really gave the RIAA a black eye, painted the organization as a greedy company or greedy organization willing to financially ruin normal people, for downloading a few songs. Maybe if you added them all up, it would cost a few hundred dollars to purchase, and yet they were being hit by massive, massive fines. To call it overkill would be an understatement. By the way, the arguments weren't helped when the U.S. Government Accountability Office, or GAO, would later investigate claims that piracy had a quantifiable impact on the entertainment industry as a whole. So the GAO's findings essentially said, there's no way you can assess how much money was lost due to piracy because you can't just assume that for every illegal download that existed, you had a lost sale. Like, that's the only way. In the classic sense, like if it's a physical piece of media, if someone walks into a store and like steals some CDs and walks out, yeah, you had a physical thing there, right? Like the store could say, hey, our inventory shows that we should have you know, 20 copies of this Billy Joel album, but we only have 15 and we can't account for the other five. I mean, that's, those are lost sales. Like someone somewhere is eating that loss, but with digital files, it's obviously different, right? So in other words, uh, I could download an entire album or a movie or a TV series, and maybe I'm not like super interested in it. I'm curious, but not curious enough to actually go out and buy it. So I just download it. I pirate it. And... In other words, like if I had not illegally downloaded the material, if I just ignored it, well, I still wouldn't have bought the thing. So there was no lost sale because I wasn't going to buy it anyway. That was the GAO's point. They said you cannot say that for every pirated copy you lost out on a sale because that's just not how the world works. Also, there are plenty of instances where people have downloaded something illegally to sample it, and then they've gone out and purchased the actual thing. Uh, So you can't look at as apples to apples, right? Because, again, pirated copies and lost sales are not equivalent. Anyway, the trials of Napster, both literal and uh, figurative, as well as similar P2P services like LimeWire and Kazaa, would set the stage for what was to come next. And what was to come next was BitTorrent. Now, Napster had a relatively brief existence, at least as far as peer-to-peer file sharing services were concerned. Uh, Lawsuits pretty much forced Napster to shut down by 2001-2002. The name would persist, and it became a brand, but it was no longer associated with peer-to-peer file sharing. Several critics viewed the whole thing as an injustice because Napster had developed technologies to cut back on the legal distribution of copyrighted files. In other words, Napster was taking steps to try and prevent piracy across its platform, But the courts were saying, well, unless it's 100% effective, then it's not enough. Uh, That led Lawrence Lessig to say that the courts were condemning file sharing as a whole, not copyright infringement in particular. Essentially, that the courts were trying to shut down an entire technology without any regard for what that technology can do. And that was a legit criticism. You know, while Napster was best known as a hub for pirated music, the fact was that peer-to-peer architecture is content agnostic. It's just a way to distribute files throughout a network without, you know, too much hassle. Many folks essentially equated file sharing with piracy, and that's just not accurate. There are plenty of programmers who have created files intended for free distribution, and a peer-to-peer network is a really effective way to do that at high speed. These days... Assuming you have access to broadband, it's not as big a deal as it used to be, but back then, when download speeds were a fraction of what you find in most places today, it really mattered. And this brings us to another American programmer. His name is Bram Cohen. He grew up in Manhattan in New York. He and I are actually the same age. We were born the same year, but while I was drawn to English Lit in the theater, only to find myself professionally talking about tech, Cohen is in fact the real deal. Uh, He was fascinated with computers as a kid, got into programming early on, went to college just for a couple of years before he dropped out in 1995, entered the workforce, and joined various dot-com companies in the mid and late 90s. Now, this was in the days when the dot-com bubble was still in the inflation period. It wouldn't burst until like 2000, 2001. He worked for one outfit called Mojo Nation that had an interesting product. Uh, It was a project that would allow people to take a large encrypted file and break that large encrypted file into smaller encrypted chunks. Then they could transfer those chunks to different computers running the same software on the network. So you sort of have an ad hoc computer network with different computers holding different pieces of an encrypted puzzle. So if you wanted to download the encrypted file, you would actually be downloading chunks from different computers to put it all together. While Cohen was frustrated with the older file transfer methods that meant you were in for a slow experience if you needed to transfer a file of significant size, and he saw the potential to use the Mojo Nation approach of breaking files into smaller chunks. But instead of distributing the chunks to different computers, you could use this method to make file transfers faster through a peer-to-peer network. So BitTorrent relies on web clients, which is, you know, kind of like a web browser. So that's, you know, that's the easy way to think of it. And also websites that act as a type of index or directory. So a torrent network has a record of all the members of that network, like everyone who's running that particular client software. Uh, These are peers, in other words, who have connected their machines to the system. This record includes which files are on which peers machines, so let's say we've got just twenty peers in this network, so very small network, and half of them have already downloaded a particular file because it's pretty popular. The site keeps track of that it sees which of the peers have that file available on their machines. So you search for this file and you see it's on ten of the peers in this network, and you initiate a download now you're unlike you know a Napster, you're not downloading from a specific peer. You're not targeting a peer that's near you and saying, I want the file from that person. Uh, These files are in chunks and you can actually download different chunks from different peers at the same time. That really speeds up the download process. You're no longer dependent upon a single source to send all of a file to you. You're grabbing bits and pieces from different peers on the network, so it makes things go much faster. So let's say you want to download a freeware program that was a pretty large file. Traditionally, you would use FTP to log into a server and transfer a file from the server to your computer. And it would take as long as the weakest connection between you and that server. But with a BitTorrent network, you would connect to a peer-to-peer network and search for a torrent or record of that particular file. And instead of downloading the file directly from the website, you're connected to the various peers in the network that have this exact file. And since the file is now in pieces, your torrent client would grab some pieces from peer one, some pieces from peer two, etc. Uh, this used way less bandwidth than other methods of file transfers, and it sped things up considerably. Now, upon being downloaded, the file becomes what is called a seed. That means it would be a file that other peers could access to download to their machines. And it's generally considered good form to seed the files that you have downloaded. You can take downloaded files and move them to another folder and thus not seed the file any further. But that's considered bad form. And some torrent sites penalize users who download as peers, but they do not seed files after downloading. In fact, Cohen intended that to be a feature from the very beginning to avoid what was called leeching. Leeching is when you are in a network like this And you're just in it to download stuff. You're not offering anything in return. So the way BitTorrent works is that it rewards people who offer up files for others to download by making their own download speeds faster. So the more you share, the faster your future download speeds will be. And he called it a tit-for-tat system. And again, there's nothing about this methodology itself that is illegal. So as long as the content moving across the networks isn't, you know, copyright. Uh, copyrighted and that you're infringing on copyright, uh, you know, or the creators have allowed for the free distribution of those files. Well, then this is just an effective way to distribute files across large numbers of people. The problem comes when people start using this method to distribute stuff that they don't have the authority to replicate and distribute. And in fact, BitTorrent itself doesn't index torrent files. Rather, various websites have hosted torrent directories instead. These sites depend upon BitTorrent, but are not part of BitTorrent. And so when the various entertainment industries started to come after this new threat, they focused primarily on the index sites rather than the protocol itself. A quick analogy, uh, going after BitTorrent would be kind of like going after a company that makes typewriters, because someone could use a typewriter to type out copies of copyrighted works without permission. But it's not the typewriter company's fault that a consumer used its product to do that. The same basic argument kind of applies to stuff like BitTorrent. So BitTorrent hit the scene around 2001. Two years later in 2003, that's when we saw the anti-copyright group called uh, Piratbiran uh, or Bureau of Piracy launching the Pirate Bay. It is one of those torrent indexing sites I was talking about just a moment ago. The founding of the organization and the site followed uh, the massive lawsuit against Napster, as well as a huge legal case in South Africa that had nothing to do with music, but everything to do with intellectual property. Uh, In it, the South African government was pitted against the medical industry, big pharma, if you will. At the center of that conflict was the practice of importing patented AIDS drugs from other countries without first getting permission from the manufacturing companies. So in other words, South Africa could order drugs from these pharmaceutical companies, but they would charge high amounts. Or they could order the same drugs from other countries, but they were doing so outside of the permission of the pharmaceutical companies. They could do it for cheaper. Also, they were starting to produce some of the drugs within South Africa without the permission from Big Pharma. Uh, Nearly 40 pharmaceutical companies joined in a class action lawsuit against the South African government. And, you know, that was looking kind of rough, right? Like this idea of protecting intellectual property being somehow more important than the lives of AIDS patients, right? That's how how it was being perceived. And in Sweden, there was this growing group of mostly young folks who saw these kinds of actions as the height of capitalistic greed and oppression. The group, which was loosely organized, was interested in the sharing of information and culture. I actually don't want to try and summarize what the group believed because it seems to me as though... It was more like an ongoing conversation with several people who all had slightly different points of view. So it would be a misrepresentation to say that there was a single, unified, coherent philosophy. But I do think it's safe to say that most of the people involved felt that copyright laws as a whole are kind of broken and the copyright system is broken, that they're more about restricting access than guaranteeing a creator a chance to profit from their work. In fact... Some of the founders of the Pirate Bay have said that they think less attention should have been granted toward copyright and more should have been granted toward how do we compensate artists for their art. And that, you know, copyright really is more about restricting access rather than guaranteeing a creator a chance to make money, Uh, particularly in a world where the parties holding the copyrights tend to be these massive companies, not you know inventors or artists or musicians. In fact, a lot of this could also apply to patents. Honestly, in fact, I can even make this personal. I'll I'll, I'll tell you a personal version of this. Let's talk about tech stuff for a second. I co-created this podcast, Tech Stuff, with my original co-host Chris Paulette, and this happened way back in two thousand eight. But I do not and have never owned Tech Stuff, the podcast. I've been on every single tech stuff except for one. (laughs) I handed the microphone over to Lauren Vogelbaum for a single episode. And the owner of the podcast has changed over time, but it was never me. It started as HowStuffWorks.com and moved to Discovery Communications and then uh, changed hands a few other times before it became part of iHeartMedia. And yeah, I've written nearly every single episode and I've recorded nearly every single episode. It is my work. It's my research. It's my point of view in nearly every episode that's published. But I do not own any of that. I'm not the copyright holder for tech stuff. That goes to the company. Now, to be clear, I don't have a problem with this in my specific case, because if it weren't for HowStuffWorks.com, I probably wouldn't have gotten into podcasting. Certainly not at that time anyway. I wouldn't have had the money to get together the equipment back in 2008. I wouldn't have had the time to learn all the editing tricks and I wouldn't know where to host it. Uh, At the very least, my entry into podcasting would have been delayed by several years had it not been for the company. And because podcasting is my job and I work for a company, I get a salary. There are tons of folks out there who are into podcasting, and many of them are lucky enough if they are able to cover expenses, let alone make a living from it. Sure, there's some superstars out there who are making crazy bank on podcasting. I'm not one of them, but maybe one day. But most folks do it as a hobby, right? So I don't own the show tech stuff. But on the other hand, I can earn a living through that show. That's a trade-off. So for tons of artists, the only way to even get into the mix is to partner up with an established media company first. The artist might make all their own work, they might be solely responsible for how it comes out, but the copyrights, well, most often those go to the company that the artist is signed with. Again, it's a trade-off. The artist is hoping for greater exposure and opportunities to make money and to make whatever it is they make, and the company holds those copyrights as part of company assets. It's part of the stuff that makes the company profitable. But even when you take all that into consideration, it's a bitter pill to swallow to realize that the folks who are creating the stuff we consume don't necessarily hold the rights to that stuff. I mean, imagine walking up to a musician and saying, I love that song you did, and I was kind of hoping I could sample it for this song idea I have. And maybe the artist loves your idea, and they think it's cool, and they're, they're excited by it, but they don't actually own the right to their own music, and they can't legally say, yeah, you can use my work, because they are not the one who owned the copyright. For some folks, including folks in the Bureau of Piracy, that was a big problem. We'll talk about it more when we come back after this break. Running a business is no cakewalk. Okay, we talked about the very tip of a huge iceberg when it comes to copyright issues. Uh, There's also the problem that laws vary country to country, and that in countries like the U.S., these powerful media companies have leveraged their influence on politics to extend copyright protections to a point where it is very difficult to make use of a previous work that is, you know, still within memory and is relevant without getting into legal trouble. And as many people pointed out, this can severely impact creativity. I mean, let's face it. I mean, pretty much every creative effort is at least in part inspired by stuff that came before it. But copyright can put a squeeze on that kind of thing, especially if it extends too far. Now, whether the founders of the Pirate Bay felt that they were crusaders against an unfair system or they just wanted to thumb their noses at the establishment or a healthy mixture of both, I don't really know. Uh, I suspect there's a mix of the two, but the Pirate Bay went online in 2003 and becomes a massive index for torrent files. In fact, uh, at certain points, the Pirate Bay was responsible for around half of all torrent traffic on the Internet. Media companies, particularly in the United States, were champing at the bit to get the site shut down. The site's founders, which included uh, Frederick. Oh, I'm going to butcher these names, too, by the way. They're all Swedish, so bear with me. Here we go. Frederick Nij, uh, Gottfried svartholm Varg, and Peter Sunde. Uh, they maintained that the site had no illegal content. It was an index. It was not a depository. It wasn't hosting those files. It was just hosting an index of where you could find those files. Now, that's an important distinction, because if you think of it that way, the Pirate Bay is kind of like Google's search engine when you think about it. It's an index that keeps track of where files are. You can search for certain files. You can find a torrent that, you know, claims to be the file that you want to download. That's an important distinction too. These uh, sites can often include malware that's posing as stuff you might want. But anyway, the Pirate Bay itself wasn't hosting those files. It was just keeping track of where they all were. It was, however, also using web advertising to pay for operations and to make a profit. The Pirate Bay was getting lots of traffic and that meant a lot of ad views. And that really made the entertainment industry even angrier uh, and gave them what they felt like was an inroad into their complaints. So not only were these Swedish pirates facilitating the wholesale theft of massive amounts of copyrighted material, they were also making money off the whole darn thing. And that's kind of what the media company's point of view was. It was tricky for the companies to come after the Pirate Bay, though, because the site was hosted in Sweden and U.S. law, even the U.S. law that's backed by powerful media companies, doesn't have much authority outside of the United States. But the companies kept pushing and they were pressuring the United States government to in turn put pressure on the Swedish government. And in 2006, Swedish police raided an Internet service provider in Sweden called PRQ, this was the provider that hosted the servers running the Pirate Bay website. From what I understand, the raid shut down not just the Pirate Bay, but other PRQ customers as well, which at the very least seems like a gross overreach of police authority. The raid shut down the Pirate Bay for three whole days. Just three days. Um, the Pirate Bay returned just a couple days later, and the group had leased server space from a sympathetic service provider in uh, in Europe And the activity continued, but for the three co-founders, the law was still eager to get hold of them. In 2008, the three Pirate Bay operators, as well as a businessman named Carl Lundström, who had helped with servers and bandwidth and that kind of stuff on the back end, they all faced charges of assisting copyright infringement, though really it was more like they were facilitating, you know, other people being able to break the law by having a website, I guess. Now, one of the big arguments that the co-founders made in the trial was that their site was essentially just a blank slate. They said the content that shows up on the Pirate Bay, I mean, apart from the ads, only came from the site's users. If the users were not seeding files for sharing, there'd be nothing to index. The Pirate Bay was truly a user-generated content site. They argued they weren't the ones putting the files up for sharing in the first place. The users were. And that the demands from various copyright holders should actually go to the people who uploaded those files, not to the Pirate Bay. You know, they said, you're telling us to take this down. Well, we can't. We didn't put it up. We just have an index. You should go after the person who put it up. The trial went on for quite some time, actually really only nine days, but it felt like an eternity. And all three of the co-founders were found guilty In April 2009, they each received a prison sentence of one year and a fine that amounted to around $3.6 U.S. dollars. They appealed that decision. That appeal eventually led to a reduction in the sentence for everybody but Varg, who was ill during the appeals process and was unable to attend. So his sentence just remained the same. But the fine was actually increased to around $6.6 million. The three co-founders all... You know, kind of left Sweden before they could be taken into custody, but they were all three eventually arrested and served at least part of their sentences before they were released. But while the founders were prosecuted or persecuted, depending upon your point of view, the Pirate Bay continued. Uh, That doesn't mean it continued without further interest or interference from the authorities. In 2014, Swedish police raided a Pirate Bay server room in Stockholm, Sweden, which took a Pirate Bay portal offline temporarily. Uh, this was not too long after hackers identifying themselves as the Guardians of the Peace had infiltrated Sony Pictures' company uh, computer network, and the hackers had stolen an enormous amount of information, including unreleased or recently released movies. Uh, and then subsequently, some of those started to pop up on torrent index sites like the Pirate Bay. So there was at least some speculation that the Sony hacks led to an increased uh, investigation and uh, interference with torrent sites like the Pirate Bay. Anyway, uh, the site was down, but it wasn't out. Administrators for the site found other places to host it, eventually moving to the Trabia network and making use of uh, Cloudflare's reverse proxy product. Um, A reverse proxy describes a system in which you, using a client, contact a reverse proxy server And you're asking for a file, right? Let's say that you're pulling up a file that's on this one server. Well, the reverse proxy server doesn't actually host the file itself. Instead, it pulls that information from a server that does host the file. Then the reverse proxy server sends that information to you or more accurately to your client. So from the client perspective, it looks like the data is coming straight from the reverse proxy server, like it lives there because the client never has any direct content with the server on the network that actually hosts that specific file. It's it's a, a level of protection for a network. The Pirate Bay is still active today. I actually went on there today to check out to see what kind of files are in the top 100. Uh, there's some stuff that you would expect, like porn. There's a lot of porn on the Pirate Bay. But there were also big-name movies that were on there, like uh, the latest James Bond film, The Eternals was on there. Shang-Chi was on there. I'm sure if uh, Hollywood were more active right now, if it weren't a pandemic, there'd be a lot more of those kind of things popping up on that list. But uh, yeah, you get the idea. As for what I think about all this, well, I I kind of am in agreement that copyright law and the state of copyrights is broken. Uh, I think way too much power falls into the hands of big media companies. I realize that it's kind of interesting for me to say that as an employee of a big media company, but that's just how I feel. Like, I feel like the folks who are ultimately responsible for making the stuff we love uh, end up having very little ownership of that stuff in most cases. I mean, you do hear about people going independent, uh, going with independent labels where they have more ownership of their stuff. That's great. But you know, because of the way the world works, these uh, large companies have a lot of power and influence and the ability to get stuff in front of people. The internet has gone a long way to undermining that, which is one of the reasons why I think these companies have gone so hard against, you know, file sharing sites and even individuals. It's because they perceive that that is in fact a threat. And, And it's also the reason why, Like the people behind the Pirate Bay were interested in in the first place because it potentially is an upset of a system that has placed an enormous amount of power in a relatively small number of companies and could rather distribute that power to the people who are actually making the stuff and potentially benefiting folks who otherwise would never be able to experience that stuff. Go back to the story about the AIDS medication in South Africa. Uh, like it's hard to make an argument in support of the pharmaceutical companies when the outcome of that argument is, I'm sorry that you can't afford to keep you, the people in your country alive. Right? Like that's that's kind of how you can frame that argument. Now, I know that's not how the pharmaceutical companies would frame it. Of course they wouldn't. They would say, we have a product, there's a price for it, and the way you get the product is you pay the price. But you know, it's you can't deal in that level of, of abstraction and uh, ignore the real-world consequences. That's kind of my perspective on it. Um, but you know, that's that's again my opinion, and I I'm not even suggesting that my opinion is right. It could be that I am completely off base. Moreover, like you know, my thoughts on this can change as my experiences change. So. If you are someone who is, you know, staunchly in support of copyright, uh, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying that I don't necessarily agree with you, but it doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means I have a different point of view on this particular issue. If you're someone who just pirates everything, and you don't buy anything ever. uh, I don't agree with you either. Um, (laughs) As someone who, uh, I mean, like, goodness knows, back in my, my, shady past. I I downloaded more than a few things that I didn't pay for. In some cases, it was because I literally could not get access to it in the United States because it wasn't for sale. And I did go back and buy a lot of that stuff later. These days, I, I work under the opinion that if I cannot afford it or if I cannot find it, I just have to deal with that. Like just because something exists doesn't mean I have a right to access it. Uh, but it does also tell me that, you know, there are better ways for us to come to ways to, to make stuff accessible and to compensate people for doing so like both the people who create the stuff and the people who make it accessible. Um, and that copyright is probably not going to be that way uh, at least not forever. So interesting, interesting story. And if you have any suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of tech stuff, please reach out to me. Best way to do that is on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.